If you will keep your scriptures open to that passage. Let's just go down together and maybe ferret out some of the technicalities of it. And he said, a certain man had two sons. Now, when Jesus does this in Scripture, he never says both sons are alike. The point of saying anybody has two sons is to make them very different, to contrast them. It's just like that in the parable about the uh, son, the father comes in and tells the two sons to go out in the, in the field. And one says no, and, but he goes anyhow, and the other one says, yeah, I'll go, but he doesn't go. See, very different people. G.K. Chesterton said one time, there are two ways of getting home. One is to stay there, and the other is to walk the entire world until you come there again. That sums up the personality of these two sons. We have today a difference of degree of rebellion of what we had from last week. Last week we talked about the lost sheep and the lost coin, neither of which really had the capability of rebellion. But now we come to the sun. Now we come to a human being like you and I. And now we know that there is a degree of human rebellion. And you'll notice in last week's message that the shepherd and the owner of the coin immediately go after what has nibbled itself lost or what has flipped itself lost, flippant itself lost. But the reaction to this The kind of repentance that's called for is very different. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. In other words, let's pretend like you died. This is a hard thing. Let's pretend like you died. Has anybody ever been in a tough financial situation or really, really wanted something? Now, don't raise your hands and pretended like someone died and left them a lot of money or left them some money and then it gets more specific as, it, as time goes along well what if my dad died or what if my mom died and left me some money now that's a horrible thought isn't it and you catch yourself right away what am I thinking well he was thinking it out loud give me the share of this estate that falls to me. Now, we can presume a couple of things. First of all, we can presume that this young man has reached the age of accountability because if any eight-year-old kid said, give me what I deserve, you'd give him what he deserved, and it wouldn't be what he was asking for, would it? I mean, you can assume that this is not a young man. You can assume that that the father is responsible enough not to give him something that will destroy him. The same way when we pray and we say, Father, give me, you can assume that God will be responsible enough not to give you something that will destroy you. You can assume that if He gives that thing to you, then He has the confidence that you have the possibility of using it for your own good. Father, give me. Now, Here comes the rub. Here comes the surprise. And he divided his wealth between them. Now, let me tell you first a couple of things. 
technically, it's very important to remember this part when you come to the older brother. Because right then and there, <clears throat> he was wealthy enough, evidently, that he had, the older brother would get a double portion. This was what it was like in the Old Testament. The older brother would get a double portion as the eldest son. And if he had two sons, he had no other children, which the, which the, which the parable says. If he only had two sons, that means the younger brother gets a third. Now, he was wealthy enough to give the younger brother the third in cash. He could carry it with him. That's pretty wealthy. However, what I really want you to see here is that the father divides the estate then and there, and the two-thirds goes to the elder brother. And he remains on as the executor of the estate. In other words, I think this would be, in modern terms, what happened is that he created a trust. And he remained as the executor. Now this is very important. Because when the younger brother comes back, it's not the father's goods that he's taken anymore. It's the elder brother's goods that he's taking. You understand what I'm saying? We'll talk about that probably next week. I doubt if I'll even get to the elder brother this week. So, the father divides his wealth. Now, here's the other point of that. Here's the request. Father, give me my share of the estate. And the father goes, okay. Can you imagine the shock? Okay. Sure. I'll give it to you. There is a poem by E.B. Browning, if I can remember it. There's a stanza in it that just I love. And it says, God answers sharp and sudden some prayers and flings the thing we have asked in our face. A gauntlet with a gift in it. Now think about that for a second. A gauntlet with a gift in it. Every prayer we have answered immediately is a challenge. That is not the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process. I don't know about you, but I keep track of what God gives me and what, and what prayers are answered and what prayers aren't. And anymore, I'm more surprised when I can't see the answer within a reasonable period of time than when I can. God answers prayer. However, that is not always a relief. Many times, it's a consummate responsibility. It's a gauntlet. It's a challenge. There was a time in Becky and I's life when we did not believe. We were told by the doctors we could not have children together. And my, my, the bottom dropped out of my world. What do you mean? It's every American's right to have children together. I mean, my, my mother used to tell me, if you even kiss her, you're going to have a baby, so don't. You know? <laughs> I lived most of my high school and college in fear. And then a doctor one day says, you probably never have children. But we did. Three boys. And they turned out to be a gift wrapped in a gauntlet. There's a challenge to that. 
that for at least 18 years of their life, and hopefully for only 18 years, if we've done a good enough job the first 18 years, we will be responsible every moment we're alive. I remember going, taking Becky out on a date because we had to get alone, away from the kids. And what did we talk about on the date? Of course. We have prayed so many prayers. God, give me this woman to marry me. And he has a gift wrapped in a gauntlet. (laughs) Father, give me this job. Father, help me get elected to this. And he has. And then he says, now what are you going to do? I've watched with interest the Supreme Court case of Webster about abortion. And I know how many Christians have prayed for years for some crack in Roe v. Wade. And to many, that decision was an answer to prayer. But I wonder if you realize that that gift has come wrapped in a gauntlet. I wonder how much people realize that if abortion does become illegal, what a huge responsibility that brings. It's easy to say, Lord, let a court decide in my favor. What is very difficult to say is that I will be responsible for the lives of the children that are born. It's simple to say, adoption, not abortion. But what about the babies that aren't white? And what about the babies that aren't healthy? And what about those of us that have raised our kids and we think we're all through? Sometimes God answers sharp and sudden some prayers and flings what we've asked in our face, a gauntlet with a gift wrapped in it. Answered prayer is a matter of stewardship, not a matter of total joy. And so when that father gave that money to that son, he had a choice. He could waste it or he could work it. It could waste him or it could work him. God has always held us accountable. In Genesis 3, God was walking in the cool of the day in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? And this thing that Adam felt in his soul, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, I've wasted it. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. And the master comes to what? Settle accounts. Answered prayer is not the end. And so here is this father who has given this to this child. He is still a child up here, you know from the rest of the story. And he has never been taught. I have heard a hundred sermons on how to get prayers answered. 
I have never heard a sermon on how to live after you get a prayer answered. He's never been taught what to do with this money, or if he has, he has rejected it. And they divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. Sin is always a distant country from God. We're not talking geography. We're talking out of the reach of the Father. And I want you to notice that the Father does not follow. Here is the difference between rebellion and ignorance. And the Eastern religions would say that man makes mistakes because he is ignorant. That's where the Western religions totally disagree. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam say no man willingly, knowledgeably sins. It's not our matter of ignorance. It's a matter of wanting to do what you want to do, and so you do it. When there is ignorance, the shepherd goes and throws the lamb on his shoulders and carries him back and says, Ah, yeah, found you. There's no decision-making part on the part of the lamb or the part of the coin. But when there's a rebellious son, the father lets him go. Letting go is not a matter of not caring anymore. It's a matter of not being able to care for someone anymore. The father realized that if he went and camped everywhere the son camped, that it would increase the rebellion, that this was a decision that the son had to make. And so when someone says, I'm going to do this, it's your responsibility as a Christian to get to them as soon as you can and say, do you really want to do this? Can you imagine the conversation that the father was having with that son when he was giving him all that money? Now I want to remind you, boy, what happens? Ignored it. But he had the conversation. It is our responsibility to go forthright to someone to have that conversation. And if they still decide to go into the far country, we cut off communication. And we wait. And we wait. And it says, he squandered his estate with loose Living. Now, the Greek word there is a sotos. A sotos gives us our word of soteriology, which is a doctrine of salvation. And, and sotos means um, to come together, to be healed, to be, to be uh, gathered in, so on and so forth. A sotos means without. So it's without being gathered. Loose is a good term, is a good term for that. Let me describe to you, biblically, what he's talking about here. If you would turn to me, with me to John 4, 13. Sotos means not, have the cap- not having 
the propensity to lose what you have. John 4.13 Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, He's talking about the living water, shall, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about the well water, shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, keep your finger there and turn back to Jeremiah chapter 2. Let me show you something. Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Remember what Jesus just said? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns. Now when this young man divided from his father, he divided from the source of the growth of that income. And he decided to have his own holding, his own cistern. But he did not have the spiritual maturity. And so he divided as to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, when we say loose living, we're talking about a person who has absolutely no propensity for being able to gather and store so that it can reproduce and renew oneself. This is somebody who wants everything. It's a frantic person. And let me say to you that you do not have to squander all your money on women and gambling in order to be loose living. You can squander all of your emotions on trying to control your kids. You can squander all of your thoughts on having to see what's coming up with the next soap opera on TV. You can use everything you have, and when you go to bed at night, have absolutely nothing in reserve, and when you wake up in the morning, still, over a period of time, have nothing in reserve. Because you have not sat and listened to the Lord. You have divided yourself from Him, and He cannot give you what is a permanent wellspring up in you. You can take what you get from the Word of God, what you get on a Sunday morning, and you can squander it immediately. Throw it all out so that you can have whatever seems to be look good at the time. Dr. Clovis Chapel once told a story about a young um, retarded kid in a village and they had at that time a, tone, a, a, a town Christmas um, thing in which they would gather together. And some people who wanted to could bring gifts for other people. And it was kind of a friendship thing. And so they all gathered and, and this one kid went in and he was big and he was lovable. But he was really made fun of a lot. 
And they came to the time where they were passing out the gifts and they were calling out the name and they came to the biggest gift of all and he called out this kid's name. And this kid came to life, absolutely came to life. His eyes brightened up. There came some sort of cognition, some sort of excitement and he tore into this box, the biggest box of all. And when he opened it, it was empty. Someone had played a joke on the village idiot. Well, we've all taken our turns at that, haven't we? When we get the box that excites us so much, it's empty. And we play the village idiot. Someone plays a joke, and we know his name. He's the adversary. It looks like someone is paying attention to us. It looks like something is there. It looks like long last someone has noticed me, but it's empty. It's not that the world can't excite us. It's that the world has nothing fulfilling for us. You can eat and eat and eat. And a half an hour later, you're, it's like going to a Chinese restaurant. You know, half an hour later, you're hungry again. Love the food. It's not very filling. So anyhow, that's what it means, loose living. To be empty. And he spent everything, and a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need, and he went and he attached himself, it's a parasitical attachment, to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the feeds, fields to feed Swine. Now here is another secret. See, I haven't even gotten to the first point yet, have I? <laughs> Don't worry. We'll be all right. When you live that kind of life, you end up feeding the very thing you hate. Do you know what it was like for a Jewish boy to feed pigs? It was the lowest, most disgusting job in the world. And when you live that frantic kind of life, you end up feeding the very thing you hate. Read Romans 7. Paul's about to tear himself apart. I do the very thing I hate. See? So therefore, here's this kid. He's not only hungry, but he's doing something that emotionally... He just can't stand, and he can't stand himself for doing. And he was longing, the word in Greek is literally lusting, to fill his stomach with the pods. Now these are, pod, these are long bean-like pods off of a tree in the Middle East um, that are sweet and, uh, but not fit for human consumption. He was longing to fill his stomach with the, with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, now here's a part where the, the King James is, is, is much better. When he came to himself, the Greek, the Greek says, that's the original Greek. When he came to himself, do you understand that once you're a child of the Father, you are always a child of the Father? That's who you are. That is your identity. King Philip when he was young and realized 
the propensities of the vanity of a king, hired someone to whisper in his ear every day, remember, you're mortal. Some of us could use that, especially those with high-profile positions. We could use someone every day to say, remember, you're mortal. But you know what? Some of us could also use every day someone whispering in our ear, remember your immortal. Remember your child of the king. Remember who you are. Do you think for one minute that most of us would do the silly, shabby things to ourselves that we do if we remembered who we were? He came to himself came to himself. And the Bible says, he said, how many of my fathers hired men? You know, it is so neat to be able to sit there and think, how in the world am I going to get out of this? How often do we do this? How in the world is this ever going to be made right again? And the thought comes, wait a minute. I've got a father. I've got a father. And that's what happened to him. Wait a minute. I'm a son. I've got a father. Now listen. I will, I will, I will say to him, they have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, this uh, the word, the Greek word is poyo, and it means submit me to a state where I am forever secondary just so that I can be with you. And he got up and he came to his father, but while he was a still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and, now this another way, and embraced him. But, but the Greek, again, literally means fall on his neck. Now that means, see, oriental obeisance was first on the knees and then on the face. Okay? So if he could fall on his neck, the son had gotten down about this far. Because literally the father was falling and if he would have gotten down this far, he'd have fallen on his back, right? So the father is falling and he's falling on his neck. So the son's on his knees. Father doesn't even listen. He's giving this big speech. Father, I'm sending you. Doesn't even respond to it. Now let me tell you two things, and then and then I want you to have a prayer time, and I want you to be able to fall on your knees, because maybe you need to. First, it was with humiliation that the son came back. Isn't that curious? That we are humiliated at doing the right thing and that it wasn't humiliating for him to leave? Isn't it funny how when we come back to the Father, it's an act of humiliation. But when we go off to squander ourselves, it's not. It's all mixed up, isn't it? You know why? Because people have a sense that they ought 
to be able to do something to deserve the forgiveness that they're going to ask for. You know what? There's nothing we can do to deserve the forgiveness that we're going to ask for. Because there's nothing we did to deserve the sin we did. It's not like we can ever deserve to sin. If you've been married 25 years without having an affair, does that mean you deserve one? If you've lived all your life without robbing a bank, doesn't that give you the right to go in and just once, you know, golly, I've lived all this time. Would a good legal defense for the IRS, if you've cheated on your taxes, be, well, I paid 35 years everything I owed, I figured just once, you know. Golly, look at all the good stuff I've stocked up here. That's not the way it is with forgiveness. That may be the way it is with your vacation pay, with your retirement fund. That's not the way it is with forgiveness. We never deserve to be able to, be sin, to, to sin, and therefore we can never deserve forgiveness. People always want to wait on forgiveness until they, until they get themselves in a little better place for asking. You know, I might deserve some of it. We don't. And we are in a far stronger and more realistic position if we can say to ourselves, I don't deserve any of this. I do not deserve to come back to you. I do not deserve to be a son. That's realistic. Someone came into me some time ago, and this has happened more than once. And she had squandered her life, and she was in a recovery program, and but she had certain obligations that because of the way she had lived, she could not meet. And she came into the church and she said, could you help me? And I listened to her story and I said, on behalf of you all, absolutely, absolutely, we'd be glad to. Thanks for letting us. And she said, wait a minute, you need to know something. I've been coming to this church for a long, long time and I have never given a penny to this church. You know what I said? Good. Then you won't have any delusions about deserving this, will you? Because I know so many of us, our mind would run, well, golly, I gave, uh, let me see, $6,000 last year. I need a couple of thousand. All I'm doing is ask for my money back. See? That's the way the human mind works. Not with God, gang. Not with God. We should be humiliated but not over coming back, over staying away. And secondly, I want you to see the, the father that sees his son at a far distance. What's he doing? Standing there looking every day, isn't he? Every day he's looking. There's an old hymn, corny, awful. I love it. My mother's prayers have followed me. It just, it grabs my heart. Um, the words are, um, let me see. I, uh, I grieved my Lord day by day. I scorned his love so full and free. And though I wandered far away, my mother's prayers followed me. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. To live this wasted life anew. 
For if mother's prayers have followed me, I forget the end, but you get the idea. There are rebellions that we get in, and we feel so unlovable that not even God could love us. You want to bet? He may not be able to love you when you're awake. J. Wallace Hamilton told a story. I'll end with this so that we can pray. J. Wallace Hamilton told a story about a preacher's son who had grown up strong and healthy and terrific attitude. But he became friends with a town doctor who was cynical and atheistic and wild. And more and more that son became more and more like the doctor. And the townspeople noticed it. And more and more when the parents tried to advise him, he would rebuff them and he would have nothing to do with them. And every time his mother would try to reach out, he'd rebuff her. And every time his father would try to advise him, he would curse and run out the door. And he fell into drinking and so would stumble home late at night, drunk very often. And one night he had done just that, and his father in the middle of the night woke up, and he thought to go to look into his son's bedroom. And when he opened the door, his mother, the boy's mother, his wife, was stroking the boy's hair and kissing the forehead of her son who was passed out. And she simply looked up at her husband and said, I cherish these times because he won't let me love him when he's awake. You can be in a rebellion that you won't let God love you, but I want to tell you something. <laughs> he loves you anyhow. He loves you anyhow. Let me ask you right now, just to take a few minutes and come back to the Father. If there's something in your life that you're staying away from Him because you don't want Him to touch, you want to have that freedom, I want you to give it up. I want you to come back. Or if you have wandered away from Him and you've missed Him, I want you to come back. You can stay in your pew if you like. If you'd rather be biblical about it, you can come up and kneel down so he can fall on your neck. But he wants you back. Let's pray.